your friend, the therapist. On this podcast, we're skipping the small talk and working to destigmatize mental health through intimate conversations with everyday people about their mental health journeys and how they stay well in a world that feels like it's falling apart. Thank you so much for being here, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. My guest today is Jessica Schaefer. Jessica spends most of her time at the moment parenting three littles. And when she's not doing that, she loves to write poetry, be outside, make things with her hands, and listen to people in a deep and supportive way. Thank you for being here, Jessica. Thanks for having me, Carrie. I'm excited. Yeah, I am so excited for our conversation. Um, The question that I start out with, at least right now, is what does wellness mean to you and how do you stay well these days? Yeah, um, I've listened to not, I'm not quite caught up with with your podcast, but I find it really fun to hear everybody's unique definition of wellness because I do think we get fed this one narrative of like, wellness is all these things you buy and all these things you do and, you know, wine or chocolate or bubble baths or whatever. So to the really think about what it means for me, I was like, oh yeah, like what is, what is that? And I think um, what I landed on is wellness feels like I'm capable of meeting the needs of every day. Hmm. So even if that means I'm sick, I'm capable of meeting the needs of that day by going back to bed and Hmm. not rushing myself into tasks, not forcing myself to do more than I can. So it's sort of that like knowing, like noticing, paying attention and really knowing I can meet the needs of this day and and doing that. So that was, that was where I landed thinking about wellness. Yeah. Yeah. That's such a um, important definition, I think. And I do love hearing how people's definitions are evolving as they've listened to past podcasts. And I I never really imagined that we would get so many different perspectives on this topic um, or that I would spend actually most interviews even talking about wellness in this way. Um, So yeah, I love that. I wrote down because I really want to remember when you said I'm capable of meeting the needs of every day as wellness. Yeah. Yeah. I'm wondering how you figure out what your needs are Mm -hmm. on a daily basis. Yeah, I think that for me, um, this is also an evolving practice over time um, in terms of being able to notice and and what cues am I paying attention to. But really, it comes down to a practice of noticing. And this is, you know, like Mary Oliver, like all over Mm -hmm. again. It's just noticing the world around you, noticing myself, paying attention to, oh, why am I stiff this morning? Or oh, my mind seems like it's racing. What's going on? Or, oh, I feel really cut off from the people around me. Why? And just sort of once I've noticed that, then I can start saying, okay, what's the need here? But it's the paying attention. It's the pausing. It's saying, huh, something feels a little off. What is that? Instead of just pushing through it. And and again, that's not like an overnight, oh, I just decided to notice. <laughs> that's yeah. like, you know, 20 years plus of practicing. And I, I will say I'm very, um, I feel very lucky. I feel very grateful that I grew up in a home where, uh, with quite emotionally aware parents. Mm -hmm. So there was actually a lot of coaching. Um, I'd say in my, especially in my teenage years to pay attention to myself, 
um, to pay attention to my emotions and why are they coming up like this right now? Is there something going on? So I, I feel like I got kind of a head start in this noticing practice just just from those pieces um, growing yeah. up as well, being encouraged to do that. I, I'm really curious both because I think it's interesting, but also knowing that there are parents listening, I'm curious what your parents did specifically, if you remember, mm-hmm. to encourage noticing. And now are there ways that you incorporate that or have new techniques for your own children? Yeah, um, I think it's hard to remember sort of like a day, like a daily basis kind of practice, but I have quite a vivid memory in high school um, of my dad came into the room and said, Jess, you know, can we chat? And I was like, okay. He's like, Jess, you're, you're pretty angry. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, yeah. There's just, there seems to be something you're really, you know, really struggling with. Like, can you tell me more about that? And I was like, oh, <laughs> like, until he actually named it for me and, and said, I noticed this. You seem really angry. What's going on? I hadn't even, like, it was just this rumbling, grumbling, like, low sort of background noise in my mind. And then he named it and I was like, oh, oh. So that was, like, really big for me to, to have somebody else come in and say, I, I see this, but not tell me to fix it. You got to do something. You got to change it. That's a bad attitude. Smart not. It was like, tell me more. Like, what's happening here? What's going on? Why are we so angry? Um, so that was sort of just one example of how powerful I think, I think parents sometimes, especially of teens, and I am not a parent of teens yet, <laughs> but I will be <laughs> at some point. I think they don't want to invade their teen space sometimes. And so they hesitate to really name what they're seeing. And I get that sometimes you do want to just give them their space and their time. But that that was an example of where it actually gave me permission to explore a little bit more of what I wasn't able yeah. to see. So with my yes. own kids, um, I, so they're younger right now. They're eight, six and three, almost four. And we, we do a little practice that lots of families I know do um, at the end of the day, um, usually at dinner um, to name sort of what was a highlight and what was a low light in the day. Mm-hmm. Um or, you know, what felt challenging or what was the best part of your day. We use different language depending on the day so that it's just a little practice of noticing or paying attention to mm. how did I feel today? Was there something that was really great? Was there something that was really not great? And to have the freedom to, to express that and talk about that mm. at the table and have other people pause. Half of the practice is stop. We're listening to your sister right now. Stop. We're listening to your brother right now. <laughs> so, yes. You know, Which means they must be so excited to share, yes. right? If you're needing to like stop them <laughs> from interrupting one another. Yeah. Often, or they're like, I have another one. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Other person's turn. <laughs> so, yeah. 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 And what sounds really important in both the example you gave with your dad and with your own children is there's an invitation to share and there's not a judgment around yeah. what you share. That exactly. The potential is if you share something... Like I'm thinking in very fundamentalist Christian upbringings, which we can get into that because I know that like Mm -hmm. deconstruction or reconstruction, spiritual expansion is part of your journey too. But there's often this, you are only allowed to feel a certain way. Um, And I hear that that is very consciously not present 
Yeah, you it was really, um, I think that's one of the things that I'm really uh, mindful and grateful of in my own journey, sort of out of um, evangelical Christianity um, into something more expansive is it, it wasn't all um, rigid. It wasn't mm. all um, high control. There was a lot of that in my community, especially, but in my family, there was enough, um, yeah, emotional intelligence and an awareness to really create space for our individual experiences and to mm. allow emotions that usually are uncomfortable um, mm. and to address them and talk about them rather than just sort of saying, like, go up to your room and get a grip. <laughs> so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 And I, I, I think of you as a poet because that's how I was kind of introduced to you. And I know we've talked a lot about you as a mother and I'm sure we'll talk so much more about that because that is, mm-hmm. it sounds like that's a primary hat you're wearing right yes. now. <laughs> um, but I'd be curious to talk about you as a poet as well, yeah. because the way that I was introduced to you, I think that I won like a book giveaway through Beyond the Wound, which yeah. for anyone who's not familiar is um, like a religious trauma, spiritual abuse, healing kind of summit. Um, and I won a copy of your book of poetry. Maybe this is a story about water. And I would love to talk about that because mm-hmm. I think I read it in one sitting, which is how I tend to read poetry in general, um, because it feels like there's a string throughout all the poetry. And one of the things that was really valuable for me in reading your poetry is that it, and I'll let you talk more about it, but just what I noticed is that it feels like I'm reading bits of your deconstruction journey, but there's still a um, maintaining spiritual identity and it's not a like throwing Mm -hmm. it all away, which I think is really, yeah a difficult, I've found a difficult place to land is how can Mm -hmm. I maintain relationship with spirituality when it has been so harmful or when religion has been so harmful? So anyway, I'll stop talking and I would love to hear about, I guess, how this collection of poems came about for you and anything that you think is important for people to know about it without giving away too much because I want people (laughs) to go out and buy it I really do Um. (laughs) I appreciate that Carrie yeah um I think so there's a couple of things in there that I I would love to comment on um but I'll just answer the question about how the book came to be first so um I am a trained spiritual director, and if you're not familiar with what spiritual direction is, it's a practice of, or my definition is, it's a practice of holistic listening. Um, And so it's similar to therapy in a lot of ways in the sense that you are, it's about presence, it's about um, the relationship, the work together, um, but it encompasses your whole life. It doesn't have that focus on just, you know, do we have a mental wellness need that needs specific strategies. So spiritual direction has been um, my saving grace. Um, I discovered it in my early 20s and have had a spiritual director myself since then, got trained as well. And it's my one hour a month um, where everything in my life kind of, I can just take a look at the patterns. I can take a look at sort of the things I've noticed in bits and pieces, but maybe didn't have time to sit down and like fully flesh out for myself Mm. until I was in that kind of reflective, safe, 
presence where everything goes, where I can bring whatever I need to to the table. And the other person says, oh, look at that. What do you see there? Mm. Interesting. Or, oh, that looks like it hurts. Or, oh, wow, look at that. Like, let's celebrate this. And that that's such a, especially um, for in our busy lives and especially parenting small children for, for a long period when your brain is going a million miles an hour on snacks and clothes and, you know, needs to have that space to really just look at me and my needs and, and what I'm learning or what I'm processing. And, and that, um, I love that work. So I, I work with um, a number of clients who are also moving through deconstruction at various stages of their own life. And, and it felt like often I was bringing up poetry as a tool for them. Um, and saying, oh, have you read this poem? Oh, have you read that poem? And often the feedback would be like, oh, that was so good. Like, thank you. I needed those words. I needed the way that poet um, allowed me to enter their their story and like just it was like light bulb moments. And I knew that I had poetry like that for myself that I'd written. I was like, oh, yeah, like maybe maybe these would be helpful because these speak so specifically and directly to this experience of um, being raised in a very particular um, mindset and frame of reference and finding that that no longer fits. And um, yeah, so it was sort of a, a project of, of companionship. I wanted it to be available to people who this is kind of a niche experience. Um, and a lot of us feel very alone in it. A lot of us are like, where are my people? There's way more of us now than there were 20 years ago when I started deconstructing and more visibility anyway. Um, and so I, I would have liked to have more poetry that spoke so directly to my own experience then, um, because it was so, all of the poetry I was reading at the time was just so, so important to me. Rilke, Rumi, Mary Oliver, all of these poets that I had never read before and was like, oh, give me more. Uh, So this, yeah, this was my kind of, if there's anyone out there feeling alone, if there's anyone who hasn't seen something that specifically speaks to their experience of that kind of half in, half out feeling sometimes, or do I stay, do I leave? Do I have to throw the baby out with the bathwater? What can I keep? What's safe? What's not safe? Um what's wrong, what's right. We're, we're raised in such a, you know, way of like, that's wrong. And this is correct. And you know, only one thing is correct. <laughs> so yeah. that was, that was sort of the, the hope was that it would be a companion to people mm. in that journey. Yes. So, yes. Yeah. And it definitely has for me. So I, I appreciate it. And so interesting that, yes, it's very much about spirituality, but I, before we got on here, I just like flipped it open and I, I don't even know if I could like find the poem that I landed on, but it was about um, like settling into winter and darkness and co- I don't know if you know which one I'm referring to, yeah. um, but I was like, oh, how timely because I've been spending the day today like decorating my home for the holidays and I was like, well, this is, it's it's about life, right? In general, not just deconstruction. Yes. Um I know you had said that there were a few things that I mentioned yeah. that you wanted to comment on. So I'd invite you to do yeah. that. So the, the other thing you, you talked about is sort of that um, it's hard, that balance between throwing the baby out with the bathwater and, um, and keeping some form of spirituality. And I, I think that there were two, 
I finally actually just got language for this in the last month, <laughs> which is amazing. Ooh, um, yes. But I've always, I think poetry and spiritual direction were the things that allowed me to kind of see that not all of what I was raised with needed to be um, let go of, um, that there was still something important about a spiritual practice or about the part of me that felt so connected to God when I felt connected to God. There was something valid there still. And poetry and spiritual direction were sort of the places where I could kind of name that and still connect to it. But then a month ago, I read a book called The Spiritual Child um, by Dr. Lisa Miller. I believe it's Miller. Yes. And I don't actually think it's very recent. I think it was like a 2006 or something publication, but I only just came across it. And she is a researcher at the intersection of psychology and spirituality. And so it was fascinating to actually read the science about what is spirituality in humans? Is it a constructed thing? Like, culture, like we're born into a specific culture and then we're given the tools of the culture to function in our communities? Or is it like our faculties, our senses? Is it like a sense of smell? You're just born with it. And the conclusion from the science is we're just born with it. We all have this innate capacity. It's actually a skill, like she likens it to a skill of spirituality. And that skill is about being able to connect to a benign, whatever name we want to give it, universe, God, creator, and to feel that connection as a safe guide that we can rely on internally, and that also then calls us into connection with our communities. And They've done like the MRI scans and all of this stuff to see like what parts of the brain light up as babies, even like the mirroring and all, you know, like it all kind of was like, oh, thank you for making this very clear distinction between spirituality as something we all have, regardless of what belief system we were put into later. So many of us found ourselves put, you know, that spirituality is channeled into a religion and we're told that the spirituality needs to be used this way in these practices, with these beliefs. And for some people, that actually does work. But for many people, it does not. <laughs> and so it was so helpful to have um, this very uh, scientifically backed explanation that, yep, my spirituality is still this very valid tool and skill I have, and it does not need to be connected to a religion to be an important skill in my life. And it's yeah. it's about ownership, it's about choosing our language, it's about noticing sort of where we where we feel connected, where we have that sense of like what gives me that sense of benign guidance. Poetry would be a big one for me. Like it's sort of like, oh, I can I can go back and read this poem and it will help me figure out where how I want to reframe things, how I want to change mm -hmm. my perspective, how I want to feel um, connected to the people around me. So that I would highly recommend. It's very dense. Like there's a lot of the science in there and it is written for parents in the sense or caregivers in the sense of like, how do you support children to develop their skill of spirituality? Um, but yeah, it's a really useful tool. Um, I think for most yeah. caregivers or, or people in the helping profession to sort of see spirituality as a valid skill and instead of feeling a little ne nervous or hesitant about 
how do I even talk about this with people? Do I bring it up? Do I not bring it up? Like, yeah, so. yeah, I will definitely put that in the show notes and put it on my <laughs> reading list. And I'm curious um, about this idea of nurturing spirituality in children. I am not a parent in that way. I, you know, I have a dog and I am yeah. think she's innately spiritual. I don't have to nurture Absolutely. that. Um, <laughs> but ha- for, for human children, do you have any recommendations for how people might nurture spirituality in their children, especially if there may be people who are deconstructing from a high control religion and, and want to be mindful of not imposing yeah. something on them. So imposing versus nurturing. Yeah. I think what was so also comforting about this book was that many of the suggestions she gave for how to help sort of foster this skill in children were are, were things that many of us naturally already do. So it's things like, you know, your toddler pauses on a walk to look at the fuzzy caterpillar on the road, you know, and, and you stop with your toddler and say, Oh, look at that. And you just spend the moment noticing together and allowing that wonder kids have that natural sense of wonder and allowing them to foster that and, and really be with it obviously you can't every time if you're, you know, needing to get to an appointment or whatever, but the more we can make room for their natural wonder, the better. And another one was not squashing questions. Um, So this one I think is also really helpful. She made kind of two points on the questions, either dismissing really squashes it. This is not an important topic. You know, this is not something we need to talk about it. You don't need, you know, you don't need to spend time on this. It's not important in our family very dismissive. Kids get the message. They stop using sort of that part of their brain. They're like, okay, well, I guess we're not going to talk about like where we go after we die or, you know, like what happens, those kind of big life questions um, or what's the meaning of life, you know? And it's like, I don't have a good answer or I feel like I don't have a good answer. So then lots of us go into, oh, I don't know. And the I don't know can also be very dismissive unless it's said in a hmm like that's a really good question I actually am not really sure like let's talk about that when you open that uncertainty into a conversation instead of turning the uncertainty into a end of conversation then it's a different uncertainty so that was really helpful for me too because yeah I don't have answers for a lot of things like we're heading into the holidays and I remember last year um my kids one of them specifically is very like fact oriented. <laughs> so it was like, did this really happen about the nativity scene and yeah. the story? And I was like, well, y- you know, there probably were people who had this experience, real people. I'm not sure that it happened exactly the way the story is telling it because it only got written down like years and years and years later. So maybe their memory wasn't 100% accurate, you know, like, so we kind of explored sort of like, there's this nuance, probably some of this story happened, there was a real historical person named Jesus. But whether the story was exactly the way it was written down, I don't know. So like, leaving room for that, like, I'm not sure if that's exactly how it was. But then we also carried the conversation into what does it mean? If it's not exactly how it was does what's the importance of a story what's the importance of this story for you for me um and so we we had a chance to kind of talk about like 
I love, I've, I've, you've probably seen this on Instagram recently too. Someone had posted a like, I'm refusing to talk about nonfiction as not true. So nonfiction is learning through imagination. Or sorry, I'm saying that wrong. Fiction as not true, nonfiction as yes. true. <laughs> there we go. Yes, Flip. yes. So nonfiction is learning through information and fiction is learning through imagination. So I love that because I'm like, okay, let's imagine that this story let's imagine what about the story might be healing or helpful or hopeful to people reading it. We all, you know, even on a very metaphorical level, when we think about the whole light and darkness, we all need a light and darkness sometimes. Right. And so, especially when we've waited for it for a long time and we've almost given up hope that that light's ever going to show up, you know, so there's sort of these different levels that we can understand story on and engage with it, even if we don't believe that it's a hundred percent historically factually true. Yes. So. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I, what I hear in sort of how you engage with spirituality for yourself and your kids is there's a lot of, you said wonder that feels like a really mm-hmm. important word and curiosity Yes. Perhaps this like wanting to learn more beginners mind. Like I, yeah. I think you're also a therapist as well That's or have right. training in therapy. Yeah. yeah. And in, in the therapist field, we often talk about um, like approaching something with a beginner's mind. Mm-hmm. And that sounds very spiritual by your definition. Yes. This yeah. Beginner's because mind. to do beginner's mind, we actually need to have compassion for ourselves. We actually have oh. to like have this, this deep sense of you're allowed to not know. You're allowed to make mistakes. You're allowed to not have all the answers, which for many of us raised in a high control religion, that's not the case. (laughs) You have to know, you have to not make mistakes. And if you do make a mistake, it's very shaming. Better fix that right away Um, instead of, oh, what happened? Let's learn from that. So, yes. Yeah. yeah, and at least my experience in high control religion, going back to what you were saying about stories, is that we have to view all the Bible stories as factually true, yeah. literal, how they were written. Yeah. And there's no room for wonder and curiosity. And I think you and a couple other people recommended the book, The Red Tent, yeah. to me, yeah. which I'm reading now. And what I love about that book, and there's another book that Sue Monk Kidd wrote that is like Mm -hmm. a similar idea where it's like taking a biblical story and sort of reimagining it in these cases from the more of a female perspective and yeah yeah, something like that might be really frowned upon in a fundamentalist community but it I have noticed it's a tool for me to engage with the Christian tradition I was raised in in a more expansive way actually rather than throwing the whole thing out Right. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. reclaiming some of those stories. And um, in fact, um, Rana Detrick just released a book called Rewriting Eve. Um, and mm. that she goes back and says, hey, these are still our stories, <laughs> even if we're yes. no longer part of Christianity or part of uh, religious tradition. These women are still ours and we can reclaim their stories and we can find what we need from them as women. Um, they don't just exclusively belong to the theology we were raised in. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's so valuable. And I will make sure that I get the names of all these books and link them and add them to my own list again. Um, I'd be curious about your journey out of high control religion. And I know you said that was about 20 years ago. Like, Yeah, that I started. That you started. Yes. As we know, it's not a like light switch. Um, what was that process like for you? Yeah. So I was at a Christian university, um, and I took two classes that really rocked, um, my world. I took a engendered history class, which was my first exposure Mm -hmm. to feminism and Mm -hmm. sort of looking at history through a feminist lens, which was incredible. (laughs) Um, (sighs) And I also took a course called the Archaeology of Ancient Israel, which was also fascinating because I discovered that there are not archaeological ruins for many or, or evidence for many of the biblical stories. Um, and what does that do to our faith if there's actually no archaeological evidence for, say, the story of Jericho? Mm-hmm. There's no Jericho in the archaeological record. So what do we do with that? Because that's this major story in the Old Testament about the colonization, the conquest of Israel at the time, right? So it's, yeah. it was a, both, both profs were amazing in terms of being able to hold this tension for the class and let us explore, but not letting us off the hook with, these are serious questions you have to ask. And mm-hmm. so that was sort of what started the whole journey um, was, yeah, taking apart many of the things I had assumed were just givens. Um, growing up and saying, okay, if it's not a given, then what? And that was also Mm -hmm. the era of the emerging church. I don't know if you know that phrase. There was sort of this Mm -hmm. um, kind of movement of doing church a little differently, a little more flexibly, you know, moving out of kind of strict evangelicalism. evangelicalism. So um, my husband and I were part of an emerging church for a while. And that was um, also felt liberating to to be doing church differently and and getting to ask these questions in church, having the sermon actually address um, some of these questions in different ways. Um, And when you say, oh, sorry, I want to stay with that emerging church Mm -hmm. theme because I know the word, but I do not have any experience. And I'm, when you say doing church differently, what did that actually look like? Like what was different yeah. about that? So the church we attended, what they did differently was we didn't really have like a worship band um, come in and like lead worship songs. Um, there was a band that once in a while came in and played like U2 covers and stuff, like which was awesome. And we would all like rock out to U2 <laughs> for a minute. Um, and then uh, the two, it was a church plant kind of startup idea. So the two guys and their families that started it had left another church and they pastored together. So it was not a sermon from one person. It was a conversation between the two of them. And they would sometimes also then open it up to the congregation. And we, it would actually turn into more of a conversation, which was also like cool because you're getting two different perspectives. They're having a conversation about a topic. They're not even necessarily agreeing every time, which was like, Whoa. (laughs) And then they're also including the audience occasionally. And then it it was also, um, it developed kind of organically in terms of um, what did we want to see over the year and a little bit that we were part of the congregation? Was there, was there elements we wanted to add? Was um, I had the opportunity to write sort of a new creed for the church and something that we could say collectively uh, together that 
that ca- encapsulated more of what we were actually willing to say I believe in. Um, mm. So, so yeah, that's how it looked different. Um, mm-hmm. There, there weren't sort of all the usual kind of format pieces that normally exist in church um there weren't like small groups and you know different things like that so yeah so you were there for about a year and a half you said yeah yeah and then did you stay within that sort of like emerging church type of experience or you shifted to something different yeah I shifted um we moved um geographically so that sort of ended the relationship with that church and then it was like okay now what and what what had really come around to was my husband was no longer no longer felt connected to church or faith at all he was like you know I think I'm done um so that was a big shift for me too it's like okay how do I how do I navigate this I've always been told like don't be unequally yoked like yeah yeah so that was part of the deconstruction process too was like obviously we have um what both of us believe to be a good and healthy and wonderfully supportive relationship, why would anything need to change just because one of us no longer believes the same thing that the other does? Um, so it was a lot of conversations about, okay, like we just, we will support each other where, wherever we're at. So if you want to go to church, Jess, great, go to church. If you want me to come, I can try, you know, but that's not my preference. I would prefer not to. You know, so it was, there was a lot of negotiation sort of about, okay, well, what does that look like? So for a long time, it was, I felt um, unsure about going to church by myself because that was really, really hard. Um, But eventually I, yeah, I decided to try an Anglican church. Um, So that's similar to Episcopal um, Uh churches in the States. And I... Yeah, I really appreciated liturgy. There's so much about liturgy that's very poetic. Um, So that felt very sort of comfortable. Um, I also really appreciated that there's so much historical background to the way things are done. It didn't feel as um, vulnerable to personality as Mm. evangelical churches can be, where if the personality of the pastor can really inform how the whole church feels. So it felt a little bit more um, stable that way because I could go to any Anglican church and plug in and I would know the format Mm. and I would know now we're going to say this. And maybe the language would change a little bit here and there because some of the churches were actively working on um, not gendering God. Um, So their liturgy might say God a little bit more often than father or him, Um, but it would essentially be the same format. So that was a really comforting place to be for many years. But I also sort of cycled in and out, like my spiritual director, um, I had this conversation with her so many times, like, why church? Why am I going to church? Why, like, why do I feel like I need to go to church? But then I don't really like, like, I just can't get motivated to go. And it was just like this constant, like refrain. And it was, that was a big part of the journey, probably for at least 10 years was like church or no church. And I would not go for a long time. And then I would go for a little while. And, um, I did like I found that if I was at church there was this this sense of like of deep gratitude. I it was a place where I could really sort of sink into the spiritual in a way that I couldn't in my everyday life because there didn't seem to be any space for it in the jobs I was working with the people I was friends with. Mm-hmm. There was no language for spirituality in those arenas. So church was this mm-hmm. like sort of I can go and access my spirituality in this profound way here even if I still really struggle with 
I don't know if I can say the Nicene Creed. I don't know if I, you know, like, so yeah. yeah, it was this tension of like, oh, I don't, I don't know. Or uh, they said father so many times this time. <laughs> you know what I'm yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, but it was this place where I could sink into gratitude and, and there were some really difficult um, years there too, where it was also a place for my pain um, mm. and my unknowing and my uncertainty. I, I waited for quite a number of things. I waited for work. <laughs> got my my degree in psychotherapy and it took probably um I don't know at least six months maybe more to actually find even part-time work um Mm. and that felt like waiting and then also in terms of children we we experienced a fair amount of uh infertility or not trouble getting pregnant but miscarriages so I had Mm. three miscarriages and an ectopic pregnancy before pregnancy stuck and so it was Mm. really this this season of is this ever going to happen for me? And the pat answer is God's perfect timing. Mm-hmm. And that was so unbearable in that mm-hmm. season. Um, and because the church I was going to was, I was, I didn't really know anyone there and I would come and I would leave. It was perfect because I could just go in and sit with my uncertainty and allow God to be present in the pain as I understood God at that time um, and, and leave my pain there or, or let it be acknowledged and, and loved and cared for and affirmed in that place because there was nowhere else in my life except spiritual direction. <laughs> and Amy was a lifesaver um, where I could sit with that uncertainty and, and really have it acknowledged fully. Like, yes, you're right. This may never happen for you. This might be your story. This might be just how it works out. Life isn't fair. Life doesn't owe you anything. You are not owed children just because you're trying, right? Like that was, there were these big facts that I had to like face. This Mm -hmm. may not work. Um, And that was a place where I could go with that and, Mm. and hold it, um, which was really, really powerful. So that was like, yeah, it was a home for a long time. And then I hit this this space, um, about a year ago, we moved again, um, in 2021 and I had thought, oh, I'll just find another Anglican church here and get connected. And it just didn't, it just didn't feel right. Um, I, I read a number of books last summer that kind of, um, knocked me off of this plateau that I had been on for quite a while. Um, Mm. and it just, I, I knew it was time to kind of move on. So, um, yeah, so I continue to deconstruct. I think that's one of the other interesting things we get sort of sometimes the message that you deconstruct and then you're done. Yes. <laughs> um, and it's true that there's reconstruction that happens or things that you rebuild or hold on to or spiritual practices that you're like, yes, I can still keep this. But there, yeah, we're human. We continue to evolve. We continue to hit new pieces of our lives that then force us to reevaluate. Um, and yeah, so that was that was another thing last summer. I read Christina Cleveland's "God Is a Black Woman," and that was huge, huge for me um, in a lot of ways. And highly recommend. <laughs> um, Writing it down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I actually I reread the Red Tent. I reread. Um, Dance of the Dissident Woman by Sue Monk Kidd. Oh, I reread a bunch yeah. of feminist theology. And I, yeah, I just knew I could not keep being part of a patriarchal 
colonial mm. colonialist capitalist system uh, any any longer. So that's sort of the long answer to the, <laughs> the deconstruction yeah. journey. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. And you actually, in your um, description of how you found Anglicanism and what was appealing about that, I, I really resonates and I had never heard it put quite that way, but I found Episcopalianism, right? Like similar, yeah. you know, the American version, right? Yeah. Essentially. <laughs> um, and yes, a lot of the things that you described about what felt kind of safe about that. I totally resonate with this mm-hmm. deep tradition that's not just um, from like the 1950s and onward. Once you get into like the history of fundamentalism, it's like a quite short history, really. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the liturgy, I really appreciate what you said about the liturgy in a lot of cases, not always, but can take some of the personality out, yeah. which... Uh, feels much safer. But yeah, it it sounds like you're in a place where even participating in a more sort of progressive institution is still participating in the institution. And that sounds like that didn't feel quite aligned anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's um, sort of, it's been its own, again, reevaluate, like sort of what are the messages that are, um, from childhood about, oh, you have to be connected somewhere or you need to have a spiritual home or a community and what are, and really listening and noticing my own sense of this is not right. This is not a good fit. And now recently having read that book, feeling like, okay, no wonder my spirituality does not fit here. Like I cannot practice my spirituality authentic in authentically in this space. And that's me. And others may be able to, and that's wonderful if they can, but I can no longer do that. And I'm, I'm not going to put myself um, in those spaces anymore if, if, that, if I know that that's not where I, I feel most whole and most authentic. Mm. Yes. Are, are there ways now that are new for you that you engage with your spirituality now that the institution of church is no longer a central feature? Yeah, I think one of the things I've really, um, yeah, explored or started, started in the last year is being much more intentional, um, about forming my own community, um, I think for a long time, I felt like I needed to apologize for my spirituality um, in the sense of like in my friend groups feeling like, oh, this is I'm too intense or this is like going too deep or, you know, people don't they just want to go out and have a good time. And here I am. I want to talk about the meaning of life. And so there was this sense of like there's it's too much. It's too much. And I'm not apologizing for that any longer. <laughs> so I'm I'm really being intentional about asking for and creating the kind of intentional relationships that go deep that I want. Um, and I feel really, really grateful because uh, this summer I reconnected with a number of old friends from my from high school, from university, um, and a little more recently as well. And I said, hey, like basically I want to do an alternative Sunday morning. I, I need church, but I need it my way. <laughs> um, and, and will you do this with me? 
can you can you meet with me once a month and we'll read poetry and we'll do some mindfulness meditation and we'll do like various spiritual practices together and i i need that for me are are you interested and all of them said yes and i was like oh my god thank you <laughs> So, so I feel like um very lucky that I'm at a place where I'm bold enough to do that now and also that I have people to be bold with and say, hey, will you be my alternative Sunday morning? Will you be my wisdom circle? Will you be my place of practice? And um and I'm hoping I'm hoping to do that in person too. Here like so that's online with these friends that live all over the world. Um, and I'm hoping eventually I'm making more and more connections. Like we just moved. So it's still like brand new to this community and community in many ways, but I'm hoping to, to also sort of form some of that here. So, yeah. 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 I, I totally get that. I'm a person who wants to go deep too. We exist out there. Yeah. It's just a matter of finding each other. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Jessica, I could talk to you for so much longer. Um, one question I do want to, I have, I have two final questions. Mm-hmm. One is if people are looking for a spiritual direction, how might they find that? And I know you're in Canada, so mm-hmm. I don't know if this would be different for people in the States. Maybe you can speak to that. Um, it's it's a, yeah. actually a worldwide practice. Um, it exists in almost all religious traditions and non-religious traditions. So you can find a spiritual director who um, is not religious, or you can, if you have still a connection to a particular religion, um, there's ones in every religion. So uh, Spiritual Directors International is the, the sort of um, umbrella organization that many spiritual directors choose to be registered with. I'm not currently um, on their list, but they do have a, a searchable website feature um, that you can sort of put in your, your area and look for a spiritual director, a trained spiritual director in your area. I don't love their website. So it's a little, yeah, you just have to persevere. There's a lot of getting (laughs) through to the map and then you get to the map. (laughs) Sounds good. um, I'll try to do that heavy lifting for folks and see if I can find a link (laughs) that gets you there. Perfect. Um, The other thing is just to Google spiritual director and see what comes up. Um, And then there's quite a number of us on Instagram. Um, You can also look for spiritual directors. You can also look for soul care is another word, soul companion. A lot of people don't love the term spiritual director because it sounds actually very like, I'm going to tell you what to do because I'm your director. And that's not not actually the practice. So people choose companion, soul companion, um, spiritual Mm -hmm. companion. Um, So that's that's a way to look into it. And can you say just one more time what the difference might be between spiritual direction or soul companionship and therapy? Yeah. So I tend to see therapy as um, you've come to me for a particular challenge. Um, you're, you're struggling with anxiety. You're struggling with depression. It's impacting your well-being. You're struggling with your relationship. You need some assistance or support in developing self-esteem. So there's there's a particular challenge that exists mm. in therapy that we work on collaboratively together. And eventually the hope is you're not going to need therapy anymore. You will have gained the tools or you will have gained sort of the insight you need to be able to continue functioning well on your own. Mm. Spiritual direction is a companionship model. So for, for me, it's something I will do my whole life. Um, mm. It's 
it's about the journey and it's about presence. Um, and it's not about necessarily you have a particular struggle or a particular challenge. Sometimes, sometimes my clients do deconstruction can feel like a particular challenge, but for me, I like it, it's my, I have deconstructed for a long time, but it's also everything beyond that. Like it's sort of Mm. parenting. How is that impacting how, who I am as a person? You know, all my questions about what do I teach my kids? Like that's a place for that. Um, But it's also just, Hey, I went to the beach and it was so gorgeous. And I picked up like five pebbles and brought them home. And, and then my spiritual director would just sit there with me and be like, like, that's amazing. And, and there's space for that to just name and notice this was good in my life. This fed me in my life. This is something I want to celebrate, which we don't often get to do in therapy. We're not often like, let's celebrate this because it's heavy often. So yes, yes. Thank you for making that distinction. And I, as a therapist and someone who has been in spiritual direction, I hope that we are moving towards less fragmentation. Yes. Um, Absolutely. Because as you said, we are spiritual just by nature of who we are. And so yeah. we, I hope that we don't fragment like here we're doing therapy and all your mental health stuff. And then there's spirituality when yeah. actually we're just one being. Yeah. And through. I think that the, the, the sort of other, other difference to just make a note of is yeah, I absolutely bring both pieces to my work subtly or directly, depending on what, what I'm doing with mm-hmm. the client. But I do think for many spiritual directors who are not trained in mental health, um, it Mm. is critical that they understand they're not doing mental health work. Yes. Because there is that sort of do no harm piece. Um, And we do have, as therapists, we do have years of training that spiritual directors do not have. So there is that kind of caveat of, yes, you will look at the whole life and support with the whole life, but it's, it is support and presence and it is not informed strategic information to assist with this particular problem so that's also just sort of a to be aware for clients too to not expect your spiritual director to say oh that sounds like anxiety we should do xyz yes yes yep yeah no thank you for naming that I, I think that is important um All right. Well, I know I've kept you longer than I asked for, but thank you so much. Um, Where can people find you, follow you, buy your book, learn more about you? Yeah. So I'm, um, I have a personal website, jessicaweebshafer.com. And I'm also on Instagram, same jessicaweebshafer. So those are sort of the two spots and my book's available anywhere, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Indigo. Um, Amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Carrie. Yeah, I will link all that stuff in the show notes. Thank you so much for being here, Jessica. Yeah, it was my pleasure. This has been another conversation with your friend, the therapist. To follow the podcast, you can find us on Instagram at your friend, the therapist pod. And you can follow my work as a trauma therapist and yoga teacher on Instagram at Carrie Fillion Psychotherapy on my website, carriefillion.com. Take care and stay well.